Hi, and welcome to another John Hannah Meets. Today, as it's a Star Wars special, I'm going to leave the introduction to Admiral Ozzel from The Empire Strikes Back. Now listen to me, everybody. Isle of Wight Radio now presents John Hannum Meets. Right? Firstly, I'm going back to 1991, when Kenny Baker, R2-D2, came live into the studio. John Hannum meets from the archive. You're all dressed up, aren't you? Well, I thought I'd dress up for radio, John. Racist tie. And makeup. I thought you might have done the same, John. I mean, sitting in a t-shirt and jeans and sneakers. Yeah, and no, make, no makeup on. I suppose when you were last on radio, they used to dress up, did they? They used to, didn't they? You know, they, it's strange in the early days of radio. That's right. Even that ventriloquist on, didn't they? Yeah. How about that ventriloquist on a radio on? All eyes were peeled for a white Mercedes just now. <laughs> I you, know. You almost got lost, didn't you? Well, I got stuck behind somebody doing 30 miles an hour. And it, he was flaming at me because I was right up his tail. You know what I'm saying? Get on with it. I'm late. I'm late. <laughs> then when I got to the hospital, I couldn't. Then I couldn't find. You know, I was just round the corner, wasn't I? How anyway. do you drive at three foot eight? Is it difficult? Well, it just has it had its extensions on the two pedals, and it easy, easy really. It's, in, it's an automatic, and I just raise the seat and have a cushion behind me, and extend the two pedals. You know, the wooden wheels that normally have on sports cars. I have one of those on to get me round this, to the switches. And it, it's quite easy, really. So you look sort of um, normal height when you're driving. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a big car. Oh, really. yeah, lovely car. Star Wars, we must talk about that. There uh, were three sort of epic movies, really, weren't there, in yes. that particular trilogy, wasn't there? That's right. Well, we started about 1976. And then we finished about 1982. By the time we'd made three movies, they did go out three years each, roughly. So it took about six years altogether. How thrilled were you to actually uh, be involved with the films? Well, it, it was great after. I didn't really realise, well, nobody did to begin with. They didn't realise it was going to be such a success, you know. And, and at the time, I was involved with Opportunity Knocks with Huey Green, with my double act when I was the Minitones. And we were going on the show to, just to make up the show. We weren't in it to win it, really. We were in it just to make it a variety type of show. Right. Because we had a variety act. And... Uh, Anyway, as it happened, we came third, and they had us back on the all-winners show and things. But at the time, I thought, who wants to be stuck in a robot, you know, when I could be a star on television? And I, I turned it down two or three times. And in the end, they sent, uh, uh, what was his name now? I've forgotten the guy's name. The second unit director, anyway, came to see me and said, uh, you've got to do it, because the only guy we found that can fit inside the robot. Because they'd made the robot first. And then couldn't find anybody to get into it, you see. So, and uh, because they had to have a small robot, because uh, Carrie Fisher was very small, and Mark Hamill was quite small as well, you see. So they had to have a small robot, in contrast to Darth Vader and the Wookiee. Was it very hot inside that, Kenny? It depended on where you were. You know, if you're in a studio, it's hot anyway, whoever, wherever. But out on locations, for instance, in the Tunisian desert, it was freezing in the morning, I mean, really cold. And then by midday, it was boiling, and you were roasting. And then it went cool again in the evening. But in the robot, it wasn't too bad, because there was always a breeze, because I, I just wore a T-shirt and, uh, and shorts, and they 
sort of took, took the lid off and popped me in and put the lid back on. And, <laughs> and he left me in there. <laughs> How long were you in there? From... Well, not, <laughs> not really that long, about an hour maybe at the most, usually. Because they take a shot, you know, I mean, they, two or three uh, rehearsals of it, you know. And then they take a shot, and if it, if it worked, that was it. I was out of the robot until the next one. You met some famous stars, too, while appearing on that film, didn't you, really? Well, I met uh, Harrison Ford, of course, but, I mean, he wasn't such a big name then, of course. What was he like at that particular time? Great, nice guy, Harrison. Really good. Because my two boys were only kids then. You know, seven or eight-year-olds, roughly. And uh, I took them to the studio at Elm Street to show them the Millennium Falcon, which is a great, big, huge, massive thing in a hangar. And Harrison said, come on, I'll take you around and show you the, the Millennium Falcon. And my, well, Kevin, my youngest, said, what do we call, what's your name? What do we call you? He said, oh, just call me Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they call him. They call him Peaches. <laughs> Lovely, nice guy. I mean, he's done ever so well since oh, then. Oh, he's he? a megastar now, isn't he? Mm. And Alec Guinness was lovely. Really nice gentleman, you know. Is it sort of nice? Is there a nice sort of friendship working on, on major well, movies well, like yeah, that? Yeah, there usually is. I mean, I've, I've not done, well, I've done about 14 films, I suppose. But usually they're very nice people. And you don't get any aggro. They don't shout and scream at each other because you get nothing done by shouting and screaming. You know, usually somebody goes, I see calm, I see calm. And everybody calms down because you just get a bit fractious at times because especially with a big scene with lots of extras. A lot of it was filmed, what, in in a studio? Oh, well, the the close-ups were, obviously, and and the sets were in the studios. But the outside stuff was in the desert, was in Tunisia in the first movie. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back, the snow scenes were in Norway in a place called Fins, where it was 40 degrees below zero. But I didn't go, thankfully, um, because I wasn't involved in those particular scenes, you know. And then the last movie, The the Return of the Jedi, was in, um, well, in Elstree and then in Arizona and in the California Redwoods, where they had the speeder bikes and the Ewoks. From a financial point of view, was it good for you to take, really? Oh, yeah. Well, the first one, I was just on a salary, you know, just a set salary of so much per week. And the, and the Americans, the, like Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, they were on the percentages, you see, because <laughs> yeah. they knew what they were doing. I mean, they, they lived in Hollywood. So then on the second time around, I think that the Americans made so much money out of this first movie, they were almost embarrassed into giving us a percentage. It was only a minute percentage, really, but it, it works out to a lot of money when, you, when it works out worldwide. It's done your career an awful lot of good, really, hasn't it? Yes, it's, it, well, it doesn't done my cabaret much good, to be honest. <laughs> Although I do advertise myself as Star Wars. Well, of course. The trouble is they expect me to come on in a robot or something <laughs> and start shooting laser shots all over the place. <laughs> and there's no way you can get hold of the robot because it's copyright, you see. It's, it belongs to George Lucas. And no way will he release it. Uh, there's one in uh, Planet Hollywood in London, in the window. There's... there's R2-D2 and C-3PO right in the main entrance as you go into the restaurant with my name on a plaque over the Brilliant. over the robot, which is nice. Free publicity for me. Other movies, Time Bandits, when there were lots of um, you small people in oh, it. Oh, really. Time Bandits was <laughs> hilarious. Well, Terry Gilliam's a nutcase, you know. They're all nutcases, aren't they? All those Monty Python people. <laughs> and uh, it was great fun. It really was. We did all our own stunts. Did you? Yeah. The funniest bit for me was when we were on the deck of the Titanic, smoking cigars, and I don't smoke, <laughs> sitting in, the, in this deck chair in evening dress, in, in tails, made in Savile Row, these suits were, and we're sitting there having a drink and smoking cigars, and Randall, you know, the, what was his name, um, David Rappaport, he said to the waiter, waiter, uh, more champagne and plenty of ice. 
And as he said that, we hit the iceberg <laughs> you know, with the Titanic. And the whole deck tipped up. It was bigger yeah. than this studio. The whole thing tipped to about 45 degrees. And we all finished up in a heap <laughs> at the bottom of the... How nobody ever broke a leg or an arm or something, I'll never know. Incredible. With trays of drinks and soda siphons and deck chairs and, and goodness knows what in a big heap. <laughs> I also spotted you in The Elephant Man, which was a yeah. very sad movie, really, wasn't it? Yes, that was a sad movie, wasn't it? With uh, John mm. Hurt was The Elephant Man. Yeah. Mm. And Anthony Hopkins was it. That's right. And it was a great movie. D David Lynch directed it. Uh, I was the little fellow that got him out of the cage and then saw him off on the boat. Mm. Back from Holland, back to England. And I said, look, my friend, and who needs it more than we? It was kind of oldie English. Yeah. It was a good movie, wasn't it? Very sad, as you say. The Willow? The Willow was the last one we made. Yeah, that was a lot of little people all that found a baby belonging to a, 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 a Dakini child or something they called it. Uh, belonging to this tribe. And we were all little people. But we found this normal-sized baby in the bushes. And we were scared to death because they were going to come hunting for their, for their child. It was a. I didn't do much in it actually. I was a, my partner and I, Jack and I, were only in it to two or three weeks, at, in in a couple of scenes, and they wanted us to go to New Zealand with the company. They were filming in in the snow, in New Zealand, but because we were working in summer season or whatever we were doing, I can't remember now exactly. I think we were doing summer season. We couldn't go, but uh, that was a nice little movie. Hundreds of little people. They came from all over Europe. Did they? All shapes and sizes. How did you all get on together? But it was great fun. <laughs> well, there, was, there was Spanish, Germans, French, Italians. They were amazing. Came out of the woodwork. <laughs> Didn't know there were so many little people there. <laughs> were they smaller than you, some of them, or what? Some of them were. Some of them were quite disabled. Yeah. One guy, he was very, very disabled. You know, bent limbs and pigeon chest and uh, long arms and short legs. He was a weird little fellow, but he, quite an elderly chap. And he had this beautiful blonde looking after him. And he came off over in this, an Audi, almost a brand new Audi, and did this he? lovely blonde. Weren't jealous, were you? I was, yeah. I thought, well, how did he do that? You know? And he didn't, they didn't use him very much because he was too disabled. He couldn't move. He couldn't run around like we can. You know, he, he, was, he was no good at all, really. Whether they kept him on the payroll, I don't know. I suppose if they wanted a lot of people in one stable section, you know what I mean, stationary, and they wanted a lot of heads, I suppose that they would have kept him on for that, you know. Amadeus, you were in? Amadeus, that was one of my favourites, that was, really, because it was a very good movie. Milos Forman directed it. Did it in Prague, Czechoslovakia. It was supposed to be Vienna, because it was the life story of Mozart. But because Austria was expensive, and because Milos Forman comes from Prague, uh, he did the film in his hometown, so he could be with his mother, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think they, they did a deal with the government, you know, so that a lot of dollars were going into the Czech economy at the time, because then there were Russians, controlled by the Russians then. It was lovely though, Prague's a beautiful city. Mm. You've been lucky really, haven't you? Yes, I have, yes. I've, I've had one or two bad breaks lately, but I won't go into those. I've been all over the world, you know, Australia and New Zealand and Canada, America, South Africa twice. You popped up in Mona Lisa Europe. too. Which Mona was Lisa, a, yes, yeah. that with Bob Hoskins. Yeah. That was at Brighton. That wasn't so exotic, was it, Brighton? <laughs> well, no, it's a nice place, isn't it, Brighton? I, I like the lanes. Did the eye shows there in the, in the, way back of in course the you did, yeah. 60s. John Hallam, host of British Radio's longest-running non-stop chat show. This is your life. In 2011... 
I went to the home of Dave Prowse in Croydon. World famous, of course, as Darth Vader. Another Hanum Archive. Currently, I'm at home, actually, in uh, Croydon with Dave Prowse, and uh, you actually did Clockwork Orange as a, a movie, yeah. and someone quite important was impressed with you in it. I think George Lucas saw it, didn't he? The Clockwork Orange was a very big move for my, in my career, you know, getting uh, working for Stanley Kubrick. I, you know, we did Clockwork Orange, and Clockwork Orange came out and attracted a lot of publicity, and a lot of it was bad publicity because there was so much sex and violence in it, and... Uh, uh, but fortunately for me, as I said, it came out very, very briefly. I think it was it came in 70, um, 72, because we did it in 71, I think, and then it was 72 that it came out. Um, but it only came out very, very briefly, because Dandy got so much bad publicity, and he got loads and loads of death threats. People were threatening to kill him, you know, so, and it was such a terrible movie. And um, and so they, he decided then to take the movie off. He said, well, I'm going to take the movie off. Nobody will ever see it again. And they didn't. He took it off the circuit, and nobody saw it until after he died. It was, you know, years later. And... Uh, you couldn't couldn't see it at all in between. But fortunately for me, in the very brief period that it was out, um, this is in, in America, of course. George Lucas saw it. Came over to came over to England in '76. He set himself up in the 20th Century Fox offices in um, Soho Square, and uh, asked the managing director. He said to the managing director, um, "He said, can you do me a favour? Can you uh, can you get this guy Dave Prowse in for me?" And uh, when when he said, well, he said, fortunately, he said, I know him quite well. He's a very good friend of mine. I can know. So a guy called Peter Bill, he was a very, you know, very, very nice guy. I knew, I knew him and his wife quite well. And um, I went and eventually went to see George. And I said to George, well, you know, how did you know of me? He said, oh, he said, I saw you in Clockwork Orange. He said, if you're good enough for Stanley, Stanley Kubrick, he said, you're good enough for me. Like, you know, and that was it. That was my, that was my interview with George. Well, they offered me Chewbacca. And I said, what the hell is Chewbacca? And he said it was like a hairy gorilla that goes through the film on the side of the goodies. And all I could think of was like three months in a gorilla skin. How hot and sweaty and smelly it was all going to be. Like, you know. So I said, no, you can keep that one, George. I said, what's the, what's, what's the other part? And he said, well, the other one's the big villain of the film, a character called Darth Vader. And I said, well, don't say anymore, George. I'll have the villain's part. You know? and, and that was it. That was as simple as that. It was, you know. Became uh, one of the greatest villains uh, yeah, well, in the world. He's now regarded as one of the greatest villains of all time. Yeah, yeah. You sort of developed the walk, didn't you? Sort of worked yeah. on the oh, walk. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the one thing which I, I've always felt is if you, you know, if you establish the walk first, you've got to make everybody subservient to you. And I said, and if you if you stride out properly, you're fast enough. You you, you it looks as though everybody's like, almost like running to catch up with you. Things like this, you know. So that's what we did. And, and we had to slow up eventually because the Lord Lucas said that the camera couldn't keep up with me. You never expected from that sort of humble beginning that uh, all of a sudden you become famous all over the world, wouldn't you? No, I never I had no idea. No idea. The film came out in America, and we had all this publicity coming over from from America saying, well fantastic movie it was and how the fans were queuing around the block weeks on end as it were you know and then going into the cinema and staying in the cinema for three or four days on you know without without even leaving like you know and, uh, and seeing the film umpteen times through and we, so we had all this and then, then out of the blue i got the i got a cable from russ meyer who was a film director that i'd worked with did a terrible movie called black snake which was a great fun to do out in barbados but it was a terrible terrible movie and uh, and it, but it said it said congratulations Dave you're in the biggest movie of all time. By the way, did you know they've overdubbed your voice? And that was the very first thing I knew that James Earl Jones had come on the scene, as it were. You know. And, uh, but then of course um, when when we came to do the second and third, 
um, I knew then, of course, that my voice wasn't going to be used, so I could, I could virtually play around with it and do do exactly as I wanted. Dave, what's the story about a really famous world singer that actually wanted to meet you? Uh, is that true? Who, who are you talking about? Well, very famous. <laughs> you know, I mean, all right, go well, on. Then. All right, we, we we did the premiere of the film in um, in Empire Strikes Back. This is we didn't have a premiere, not for Star Wars, but we uh, we had a premiere for Empire Strikes Back, and it was in it was in Los Angeles. And then we flew from Los Angeles over to Washington, and I'm on the plane uh, going over to over to Washington, and um, a, a guy comes and sits next to me, and uh, he, he turns around to me. He said, "Oh, he said, gosh, he said it'd be terrible if this plane went down, wouldn't it?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, there's so many famous people on the plane." I said, "Well, I know there's all the Star Wars people." I said, "But I said, who else is on there?" He said, "Well, he said there's L. F. Fitzgerald sat over there, and I." I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, that's Ella Fitzgerald, you say. I said, oh, God, my goodness. I said, that's one, one of my great, great idols, like, you know, my, my singing idols. And I said, I'd love to meet her. He said, oh, I'll introduce you. I said, do you know her? He said, no. No, he said, no. <laughs> he said but I'll, I'll go over and talk to her. And then he goes over and comes back. And he says, she's, um, she's just said she'd love to meet you. She's dying to meet you, actually. She said, but um, she's just going to have a sleep. She said, uh, she said, as soon as she wakes up, she would like to see you. So uh, so then, of course, for the next hour or so, I'm, I'm watching her avidly, waiting for her to wake up. And I, you know, I wanted to meet her. And, uh, and eventually, as I said, she woke up and I went over and sat next to her. I said, oh, she said, what an honor this is. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she said, are you Darth Vader? I'm meeting Darth Vader. I said, no, hang on a minute, it's the other way around. It's me, I meet an elephant's Gerald, you know, the greatest singer of all time, like, you know, jazz singer. I said, and, and, uh, and uh, she said, oh, she said, my, my grandchildren never will never never get over this, that I've actually met Darth Vader. And it was, it was, it was all this, like, fan worship from her. It was, it was wonderful. You know? John Hannam, host of British Radio's longest-running non-stop chat show, This Is Your Life. I'm at home with uh, Dave Prowse in uh, Croydon. We're talking about uh, one of the greatest uh, <laughs> bad guys of all time, Darth Vader, of course. So you were in demand. I can't believe this. You did 28 TV interviews in one day once, Dave, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 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 loads. And 80 like... interviews altogether in, in mm. about four days. That's right, yeah. It was, it was almost like you know, being on a, a roller coaster, yeah, and you just, you just sit there and, and said, you, these guys have got, got about three or four minutes to be with you. And you just you just sit there, and then so you have three minutes with one guy, and then they, then he races off, and somebody else comes in and sits with you, and you go through it all over again, and it's a, it's a you know it's a hell of a lot. So the ex meat worker from Bristol, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all yeah. of a sudden, yeah. you were in it's demand everywhere you fame. went. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were on the front of Time magazine. I made Time. Well, Darth Vader did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah well, you were yeah, there, yeah, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. It was just an amazing experience for you, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but when you, when it, when we did it, I mean, I, I, to me, it was just another film. I mean, I just it was, there was. I mean, I, I didn't think we. I was doing anything out of the ordinary, and I think a lot of the people that were working on it didn't think we were doing anything out of the ordinary. There was all sorts of problems on set. There were you know, people. Lots of times, there were, you know, sets weren't ready, and they couldn't they couldn't film as they wanted to film. It, it wasn't until George went away, and and got all the special effects and put put it all together they suddenly realised that they were into something really big. Darth Vader was about six foot seven tall, was it? Yeah, six, like? seven, yeah. 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 I know the question is... Well, ma- with the helmet and mask, even, yeah. even taller, yeah. Was it air-conditioned? You're always out, no, aren't you? No, 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 there's no air-conditioning at all. But it was put together in lots of different pieces, yeah, I think. Yeah, it went on in about 15 different pieces. Where we're sat now, it's quite hot. Yeah. And yeah. was it hot inside? Oh, well, we did, you see, we did Star Wars all the way through the hottest summer we've ever had. That was, you know, 1976. 
And I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I used, what, what we used to do, I, it was, very quickly you realize, you know, you, you can't sit around in the Darth Vader suit all day. I used to go into the studios first thing in the morning and I used to, I used to go in, just put the, just put the trousers on and a t-shirt. Oh, and the boots as well. I used to spend as long as I possibly could, just like that, you know, then they would call you for rehearsals. So when they called you for rehearsals, then you would, you would put everything else, but the cape and the helmet and the mask, you used to leave that off. And so you kept out of that as long as you possibly could. Then, of course, they would turn around and say, well, sorry, sorry now we got, we got to do final rehearsals. And uh, so you, we need the full regalia. And then, of course, you rehearse and shoot. It was as quick as that. But all the rehearsals and, and the um, you know, learning the moves and everything else was all done with just trying to be as comfortable as you possibly could. I know you were shocked when you didn't actually voice, but James or Jones obviously uh, no, did well, that. No, I wasn't, I wasn't shocked at You all. weren't? No, no, no. I was... Um, uh, it was it was just it was just a surprise. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it didn't it didn't it didn't worry me unduly because, I mean, I knew I knew for instance that whatever I said was all coming through the mask. So there was no way that anything that I said during the course of the movie was 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 usable because it was all coming through the mask. It wasn't you know there was no it was all it was all muffled to be honest you know and uh, and so I, I, and I and I wasn't trying to disguise my West Country accent or anything like that like you know. <laughs> I wouldn't go to army, dear. You know we're going to do this. And, you know, uh, then, of course, as I said, I eventually got this cable from America saying that the the voice has been overdubbed. Hi, this is Dennis LaCourier, the voice of Doctor Hook, and you're listening to John Hannah Meets on Isle of Wight Radio because you have such good taste. Just a few weeks later, I was back in London, actually, at a West End theatre to interview a famous actor called James Earl Jones, who also had a connection with Darth Vader. John Hannum meets from the archive. Star Wars, been a part of your life, hasn't it, really? No. <laughs> no. Do you know what? Just a few weeks ago, I had Dave Prowse on the show. Did it? And now I've got you. <laughs> well, it's been part of Dave's life because Dave was in that costume sweating. Yes. You know, he must have lost many, many, many pounds every, every shot. You didn't want... It mentioned early on, did you, that you were doing the voice? Was that I, a fact? I, I, I was not the character. David Prowse was the character. I was special effects. And I knew better. So rather than get into all that hoopla about it, I, I, I said, would you please don't list me as in credits? Of course, a lot of people over here knew it wasn't David. When I interviewed David, he was very nice. He, he really likes you. And he said his Bristol accent from Bristol, England was against him anyway, wasn't it? Was, was it Bristol? <laughs> yes. What is it? Bristol, so, South, yeah. South, uh, Sort of Bristol, which is um, sort west? of southwest, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> could, could you give me a, a version of it? No, I can't. <laughs> no, you, 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 you can't mimic the. <laughs> no, I can't really. But <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it is a. I've given you a. I've given you two CDs of his interviews. Oh. So when you play that, you'll hear the Bristol accent. Okay, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Mine's that. just Isle of Wight, I'm afraid. <laughs> anyway, you, you you just said that uh, was Star Wars a part of my life, and I said no. It was part of David Prosser's. I didn't make money on that, you know. I, I, I mean, I was really special effects, and I got paid accordingly. Had I been David in that costume and signed up as one of the actors, my agent probably would have uh, made a bid for points. 
And that would have made me an instant millionaire the night that that movie opened. But that wasn't my fortune, uh, nor was it my choice, as I said, to be listed in anywhere in the credits. Uh, when I knew that Darth Vader was going to die, I then accepted that they could list me as the voice of Darth Vader. And whenever I, whenever I sign, I try to remember to sign it, my name in the voice of Darth Vader. Because David Prowse signs his name and is Darth Vader. <laughs> yes. It's appropriate. Yeah. Very, yes. And then, you, of course, you did The Lion King, didn't you? You had a great part in, a voice part in The Lion King, yes? In yeah. the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was a mega movie too, wasn't it? Yeah. So, I, I, again, I'm playing a, a, a dopey dad. Yes. Well, I, I'm... I'm Becoming an expert at playing dads, dad, dad, Darth Vader, and dad, Mufasa, and dad. I'm playing all the fathers I can get my hands on. Besides being one. Yes, exactly. So your voice has been great for you, hasn't it, over the years? Because you've done lots of television commercials, and you, you've. It's been. A well, speaking of not making money on Darth Vader, uh, I I think probably my work with. Uh, doing commercials for a phone company called Verizon has paid me better than any anything I've ever done. Any movie, any play. And, and I do love doing commercials. I do love doing um, animation uh, narrations. They're, they're a lot of fun. And yes, uh, Mufasa, that narration for the animation was a lot, a lot of fun. Over the years, you've done lots of TVs that we've seen in Britain, L.A. Law, Roots, Law & Order, Dr. Kildare. They were all sort of part of your growing into acting, I guess. Were they, James, really? Or, well, in, in the early days, uh, we actors who were trained mainly for the stage, except for a little radio. We got, I got radio training in, in, in university. There wasn't much uh, opportunity to train for films. You had to get in front of a camera of any sort as much as you could. So Sunday morning religious shows, for instance, we just volunteered to do poetry, do passages from the Bible, anything to get in front of a camera. Later, things like Gabriel's Fire and Heat Wave, they were big TV performances for you, weren't they, really? They happened to be. I, I didn't think Heat Wave, being a drama, was more than a, a travelogue through the racism and the social problems of Los Angeles. Well, it wasn't my favorite story. But I got two, one of those awards. You won loads of awards. Yeah. Over the of. years. You won about... No, no, I mean, for, for that one... Sh oh, yes. One, one bit. But you won, was it, did you have about five Golden Globes? You, you've won loads of awards over the years, haven't you? Oh, they're nice trophies. Yeah. And I think they are just that, they're trophies. Sesame Street. <laughs> yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were oh. probably the first big celebrity to be on there, weren't oh, you? You know what happened... Uh, the producer, uh, Rob, Mr. Robinson, Holly Robinson's father, he and his partners were creating this show, and they showed me the Muppets. And I said, oh, my, you know, that's not going to work. The kids will be scared to death of those things, those fuzzy things. Well, that's what I know about scary characters, right? It was, I mean, Elmo and... All those fuzzy characters were the favorite things of all, of, of all the children. Bert Lancaster and I were asked to do uh, he, the letters, and I, the numbers. And 
the first run, I remember doing the numbers up to 10 and falling over. And I had my head shaved then for the Great White Hope. And uh, I, I, I was, it was reported that I was very scary, especially when I fell. I don't know why it was scary when I fell, but that's what the kid said. When you were doing Swashbuckler, you did you almost had an accident, didn't you? Well, you know, I did. Yeah, we all. What was not an accident, though, was we all did that movie to be in a in a film with Robert Shaw. Ah, right. <laughs> Every one of us. Right. The accident was uh, one I, uh, I I shared with Robert. Uh, he and I played pirates, and we were to overtake a stagecoach. We call it hijack these days. Yes. And uh, overpower the sh- man running, riding shotgun and so on. And we were told if, if the stagecoach hit gravel and started swaying, we would just let go and drop to the ground. Well, Robert let go and dropped to the ground, and I froze. I hung on, and I flipped over onto the wheel. At one point, I saw the wheel cutting through my wardrobe, heading toward my crotch. I said, now, what am I going to do? I started screaming. And Bo Bridges, who looked out the window, and because he realized the driver thought that was a part of the act, and he realized it was not a part of the act, I was in trouble, and he just got the driver to pull, pull the brakes. And the brake caught me. I was being sliced here by the wheel, and then he, the brakes caught me in the back of the leg and gave me a nice little wound there, too. So that, that ended my day, that day, but I went to work shortly after that. You played Paul Robeson, I know, didn't you? Here in London, yeah. Yeah. You actually met him when you were quite young, I think, didn't you? Did you meet him early on? Well, after I came to New York and met my father, my father was a friend of his, yes, and uh, in a way sort of a protege of his, both as an actor and in politics. Except my father couldn't sing, and I think Paul was known worldwide primarily as the singer, still is. But one of those encounters, I heard him sing, I was standing in the back of a, a concert hall, and I felt a magnetism that is as palpable and uh, present and real as anything I've ever felt. I mean magnetism like magnetic field. And I, I finally understood what animal, inhuman magnetism is. It, it is a force, and he had that force. I think he affected a lot of people in a very positive way with that force. Talk about, may the force be with you. He had it. He was probably the most endowed human being I've ever known or known of. John Hanam is on the air now. Hanam, Hanam, doesn't matter. He's a lovely boy. I have two final clips from today's Star Wars special, and both go back to the very first movie. Firstly, we'll hear from cinematographer Gil Taylor, and then finally, Celia Imri. Another Hanum Archive. My current live guest is Gil Taylor, cinematographer on so many major movies, including Gil Star Wars. It's an epic, really, isn't it? Star Wars. Well, it's become an epic. I honestly never considered it to be an epic when I took the assignment on, and neither did anyone else. It's become an epic 
because of the work that has been done on both sides of the Atlantic. You actually did a lot to do with the lasers, I think. It was sort of your... Oh, well, the, uh, the thing is that the, the film, it's like most of these sort of space films and things, they, the writer writes a lot of strange words and things like zap guns or something like that, but they don't tell you how to do it. In this case, I, for want of something to do and talk to somebody, I decided that the camera boys and myself would work on the lasers, the laser swords, uh, which I'd worked with uh, this sort of um, the materials, like 3M materials that they were used on these. And there were lots of things to be done, like uh, putting light through a 50% mirror through the right through the axis of the lens, which would be projected onto you if you had this sword in your hand. It would be projected onto you, and rather like when you're motoring and you see uh, these little pea bulbs in the middle of the road, the reflect. Well, the 3M material was made with millions of little tiny things like that little tiny glass beads. Mm. And uh, since Darth Vader and uh, Alec would be fighting with swords, as I said, someone had to invent this, someone had to do it, and I did that the first week out on the payroll. Who could imagine what happens as a cameraman, director of photography, when you ring up the London office of 20th Century Fox and say, I want 9,000 photographs <laughs> within four days. Uh, that makes them think. And they say, shall we fire the cameraman? We cheaper to fire him than it was to try and get those <laughs> from all over the world. Put that light out! I'm trying to relax and listen to John Hannum. Currently, I'm at the uh, Don Mar Warehouse uh, in Covent Garden, really. I've only been here once before, and strangely, two of my all-time favourite actresses I've interviewed here, Gina McKee was the first one. Ah, yes. And Celia Imrie... Oh. So it's great. <laughs> How very flattering. I've been looking back on your career. I followed your career right since we first met. And in an uncanny way, you've been 30 years on television. Have I really? Goodness and me. what I like about you is you sort of, the parts have sort of all come through your age. You're obviously over 30 years. The parts have changed, but you've kept in the forefront of, of TV. How have you done that, really? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I suppose... The thing is, there comes a time when you're asked to go and audition for Hamlet and you think, oh, yes, no, I'd love to do that mad scene. They say, <clears throat> no, actually, Gertrude, not Ophelia. And you you have to sort of just swallow and think, oh, yes, well, that's that's a gear change now. And if you don't mind doing that, then there's all sorts of um, rather marvellous things around the corner. I think you just have to go with what is. Celia, movies... Looking back, you've done some pretty big movies, haven't you, really? I know. Uh, isn't it? My, I watched, funnily enough, uh, uh, it's terrible to say that you do watch yourself, but I was quite interested to see um, the second Bridget Jones the other night was on. And um, I, I thought how good it was, actually. I, I hadn't sort of taken it in the first time. But yes, to do that and to do... Nanny McPhee was one of my favourites. Um, and Calendar Girls. Calendar Girls is a... Now it's a play, of course, and I've seen the play a few times. And But the movie was... Astounding! I think last time we met was at uh, on the Isle of Wight, uh, when you were actually you came down to make a guest appearance, didn't you? Oh, that's right. Yes, I think I did at a women's institute. I yes, and you also came to the cinema, I think, and had a. Oh, chat. that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, and I told, I told the audience that um, 
before the film began, now what we all have to do is we all have to take our clothes off. <laughs> they did laugh. Yes. <laughs> but yes, my, no, that's right. My late wife, when we used to be shopping in Sainsbury's on a Friday, and we had a sort of a snack lunch and a cook meal at night, and she said, what do you want for lunch? Uh, a Celia Imre, you see. <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, please. And it was always a nice bun. <laughs> a nice bun. Oh, my goodness. How Is that sort of followed you around, that part? And uh, Do people tease you still or not, really? Oh, yes. No, they do. I've, I've, I was on a pier I think in Suffolk believe it or not filming Kingdom I think when I heard a child shout to his mother oh Luke it's bigger bombs <laughs> so that was rather good and then and then in France even um, oh la grande gâteau oh, oui really <laughs> which is rather thrilling <laughs> you did a Star Wars thing as well didn't I you did, I did I yeah. did uh, don't ask me what the story was because we weren't allowed to know right um, so I hadn't got a clue who I was fighting or anything but um Yes, I was Bravo 5. Do you find that the, the, the sort of Star Wars fanatics, do they still remember you fondly for that oh, part? Oh, Lord, yes. Well, what's amazing is that they recognise me amongst my helmet and goggles. I'm very flattered by that. But I sort of don't know all the stories of Star Wars at all, but I did think it was a very cool thing for Angus to have his mum as a fighter pilot. Oh, yes. So that, that was why I did it, really. <laughs> and Highlander you did, of course, didn't yes, you? Yes, which was very cultish, yes. I believe, now. It's great. He's got a swell personality. He meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street. John That's right. Thank you so much for listening to another John Hannameets. Today it's been a Star Wars special. And you heard Kenny Baker, Dave Prowse, James Earl Jones, Gil Taylor and Celia Imrie. If you go to my website, johnhannam.com, you can find news of other interviews online and also how to purchase my books. Bye-bye for now. Well, that was super smashing great, wasn't it? Jim Bowen here, just reminding you, you've been listening to John Hannum. <laughs>